0: of DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. Happy Fourth of July, Dave.
1: Same to you, Matt. Happy Independence Day. How are you doing up there in New York?
0: Well, we're actually in Pennsylvania. So, better yet, um, we've been able to get out to my parents uh, out on the lake. I got there yesterday afternoon and kind of settling in. The kids are down by the water. So, hopefully, they won't burst in on us in the middle of recording, but they're having a good time. Uh, the weather is always beautiful out here. It's actually warmer than normal. It's like in the 80s, which usually it's like 70s. If it's 85 in New York, it's 75 here. How are things in
1: Texas? We have a real feel this weekend of 104 to 108, so uh, beginning to experience the July and August Texas heat, and hard to believe that it's July and that uh, we have about a month before hopefully school begins, so it's uh, coming to its end, it seems, uh, the summer turns so quickly.
0: Well, the last three weeks, we focused on the pursuit of justice, and in some ways, that's maybe going to be our topic every week, but this week, we're going to focus on the meaning of the 4th of July, this Episode will be published tomorrow on July 4th. We're going to focus on that in the context of the ongoing efforts to destroy, deface, remove statues and monuments, memorializing key figures in American history. So let's turn to our headlines. Again, the, the center of the contemporary debate is the thousands of statues, monuments, and memorials that mark and sometimes laud people and events of historical significance And there's been a lot written on this in the last several weeks, and obviously a lot done regarding this in the last several weeks. But one piece that really jumped out as especially thoughtful and interesting was written by Wilfred McClay, who's a history professor at the University of Oklahoma. Writing in First Things, he makes the connection between the material, the the physical statues, and the philosophical categories and ideas behind them. So this is what he says. The pulling down of statues as a form of symbolic murder is congruent with the silencing of dissenting opinion, so prevalent a feature of campus life today. And my own academic field of history is entirely of a piece with the weaponizing of history in which the past is regarded as nothing more than a malleable background for concerns of the present and not as an independent source of wisdom or insight or perspective. Those caught up in the moral frenzy of the moment ought to think twice and more than twice about jettisoning figures of the past who do not measure up perfectly to the standards of the present, a present, moreover, for which those past figures cannot reasonably be held responsible. For one thing, as the scriptures warn us, the measure you use is the measure you will receive. Those who expect moral perfection of others can expect no mercy for themselves, either from their posterity or from the rebukes of their own inflamed consciences. But there's a deeper reason it is part of what it means to be a civilized human being. It is, in fact, an essential feature of civilization itself to recognize the partiality of all human achievement and to cherish it and sustain it no less for that partiality. Now, he illustrates this principle by looking at the example of, uh, of Thomas Jefferson, whose words in the Declaration, despite his faults, became the blueprint, quote unquote, and the fountain for the civil rights movement, according to civil rights leader and longtime Georgia Congressman John Lewis. Well, Matt, I, I think that if, if you
1: ever wanted to read an American history that is fair and impartial, that strikes the right balance in terms of the embrace of the country, a recognition of its faults, there'd be no better uh, history than McClay's Land of Hope. At the end of that book, he says something very interesting. He says that when you measure your patriotism, You have to do so recognizing that there are universal principles that we adhere to, and there are particular circumstances that we live in, and balancing and recognizing the universal and the particular is the best way to go about history and the best way to go about statecraft and and citizenship. So I think you see that in his remarks there on thinking through what the tearing down of these monuments mean.
0: I think there's a really important warning there from the standpoint of our expectations, for others and, and for ourselves. Uh, are we really ready to be measured by the measure of perfection? And are we so certain that what we consider to be, our considered judgments on what's right and what's wrong are, are so fixed that some years down the road, perhaps sooner than later, we won't find ourselves judged against some other standard
1: Yeah, and and we're treating those who are tearing down these monuments as if they have a claim to justice to be made. But a lot of them, by the way, are not really making a claim for justice more than they're making a claim uh, for anarchy uh, and the suggestion that there is no truth. And and I think another great piece along these lines was written by Dan Mahoney this week on on that zealous nature of the anarchic personality uh, that would kill uh, to erase history. Uh, simply kill just for the sake of killing. And, and Mahoney points out uh, in Dostoevsky's uh, work, The Demons, that that type of personality ought to be thought of with the greatest amount of distrust. So to the degree that there are rightful tearing down of statues is one thing, but if it's just that anarchic personality that's tearing down statues to tear down truth, to tear down principle, or the idea of justice in and of itself, we ought to treat that type of person, I think, differently.
0: One of the centerpieces of this debate is the status in particular of Confederate monuments and an interesting debate among conservatives in the last week or so on this point. Uh, Rich Lowry, the longtime editor of National Review, argues that conservatives should not, quote, reflexively oppose efforts to remove monuments to the discreditable Southern cause. He says, Confederate statues and symbols deserve to be reevaluated and often mothballed. The statues are an unnecessary affront to black citizens who shouldn't have to see defenders of chattel slavery put on a pedestal, literally. He continues, it is impossible to evaluate these monuments without considering the context of why they were created. Many of them were created as part of the push to enshrine a dishonest, prettied up version of the Confederacy. Now, on the other hand, uh, David Marcus writing at The Federalist issues what I think it's only fair to say is a scathing rebuke of conservatives who want to try to draw this line between, say, Robert E. Lee on the one hand and Thomas Jefferson on the other. This is what he writes in part. To these fair-weathered friends, I have a message. This is your fault, speaking to those conservatives. And you are well warned. For years, those of us with the courage to open our eyes knew exactly where this was going. It was never about the Confederacy or slavery or racism. It was always about destroying the very concept of America and replacing it with a Marxist utopia. That's who you decided to compromise with. What's done is done, but it's not too late. Now that you have seen the miles the left takes when you offered an inch, you're welcome to get back in the fight for freedom. They burned you, made you look like fools, be angry, Otherwise, your silence is complicity with mobs that would destroy not just statues, but the very foundations of our liberty. In some sense, the story of the Confederate statues in Jefferson, Lincoln, Churchill, and Gandhi are stories of forgiveness. We protect their memories because we understand that history's judgment will eventually condemn us for the luxuries we enjoy off the backs of foreign workers in slave-like conditions. We, too, hope to be understood, forgiven. In that spirit, I forgive all of those who failed to answer the call as the statues started falling. But we need you back. As is so often the case, the Great Compromise failed. There really are only two sides, one that seeks to burn everything down and one that seeks to save the greatest nation the world has ever known. Pick one now. What do you, what do you make of this, Dave?
1: Well, I I think it's excellent uh, and, and hopeful that um, Rich Lowry believes that we can make an appeal based upon reasoned nuance. I think a lot of what we're trying to do with this show in breaking down an issue further and kind of looking at um, the, the many aspects of it is to make that call for a nuanced view. But you do so in this case, expecting that the other is going to respond to that reasoned um, nuance. And I just don't see much of that on college campuses. I haven't seen much of that in, in my 30 years in the public square. Uh, I don't think it's an either or scenario where you should give up on reason nuance. So I think at the end of the day, uh, Marcus is right, that that there has to be a fortitude that goes along with a reasoned appeal. And if that fortitude is not there or is hiding in the background, usually you uh, and your nuanced approach will be trampled upon rather than win the day.
0: I think one of the weaknesses of the present conservative movement and moment is that there's this tendency to want to beat the left by imitating the left. And so if the left fights no holds barred and won't listen to reason, then we need to respond. There's no fine lines to be drawn. There's no reasons to articulate or there's no subtle claims to try to negotiate. And and the further claim that if you wanna make those nuanced arguments, then you're probably in it for the money protecting your reputation worried about being canceled worried about people calling you mean names and so we end up with a really a lack of candor within the debate on the on the, on the right about what the debate really entails and we we're not willing to charitably view the motives of others as they as they try to figure out the best approach to responding to a moment where it's it's absolutely the case that reason is scarce, that a willingness to debate, to make nuanced judgments, absolutely scarce. There's no question about that. And yet, I don't think there's any way forward without still trying to do that. Now, you can do that in a cowardly way. You can do it for cowardly reasons. But the most persuasive argument at the end of the day is an argument that's actually true. And so to not recognize that there's a difference between monuments that defend the Confederate cause, a cause that is necessarily tied into the defense of slavery. That's a treasonous cause on top of that. To not be able to draw a line there and say, well, we're just gonna defend everything because the people who are attacking are attacking everything. I don't think ultimately you can win the argument if, if you're not willing to make a case that's actually defensible on its merits and there is a line to be drawn there there is a difference between a Robert E. Lee and a Thomas Jefferson that we can articulate and is worth defending even if it's difficult to defend.
1: Yeah but I think there's also a way of of dealing with history where you recognize it in its context and you can be critical of uh, but um, your your critique is is pointing forward uh, to some deeper or greater truth. And I don't see that being the case with many of these individuals who are are making the current case against the past. So think, for example, of Augustine and the City of God. Think of how he uh, deals and treats um, the, of the Romans and of the Roman Empire. Uh, certainly, he's critical throughout of, of everything that is Rome, uh, but he recognizes that God has a plan that's working itself out through Rome. So he doesn't uh, disabuse us of history by discarding Rome or not mentioning it uh, in his in his treatise. Uh, Rome is very front and center, and he's working with Rome to understand what what truth is. I just I, I the 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 look on the face of the individual who's tearing down a monument or statue and trying to reason with that individual just seems to be a rather monumental task, one that um, <laughs> probably won't happen. And and uh, However, I think that um, there's a way right in the public square to make the case for nuance and, and, and to do so while still standing up to tyranny of the immediate uh, and the tyranny of those who would force their will upon you uh, to your death. And, and that needs to be um, uh, fought back with, with a will of our own. And I think something that's been lacking uh, in the Republican Party and in conservatism is, is that willfulness, is that spiritedness, is that thumos. Uh, it just it's, it's hard to be found in the last 30 or 40 years in the party and the deals that it's made, et cetera. So, led to a lot of exasperation, I'm i am sure that's part of Marcus's exasperation, but uh, I agree with you, Matt. It doesn't mean that we give up on reason and, and making a case for a just argument.
0: And of course there's no reason why any monument needs to be torn down, right? Monuments can be removed. There's processes for doing that. All of those tend toward reason. There's opportunities for historical review and careful, Study and you know none of that should happen in the moment. All of that should be done in a way that that allows for actual deliberation. So absolutely protect all the monuments from the mob, but that doesn't mean, therefore, you protect them indefinitely from their actual history. You don't protect them from the truth. Protect them from the mob, but not from the truth. And I think and another part of this is just and, and and as you investigate this further, you recognize that. Not every statue or monument's primary purpose is actually to praise. So I know when you were at King's, you used to take students to Gettysburg Battlefield, and there are literally thousands of monuments there telling the story of this critically important battle. It would be crazy to remove all the ones that marked where a Confederate unit stood, where a Confederate general's headquarters were located. There's something different happening there than when you put a monument of Jefferson Davis in the middle of a town square as a message to black residents that this is a town that still believes in white supremacy. Absolutely, and and I think
1: what would Gettysburg be if we took down all of the Confederate statues? I I certainly couldn't teach my primary lesson in taking students to Gettysburg, and, and that is we have to think long and deep and hard about moral issues and the moral foundation of the American regime, Uh, because if we don't do so, or we get caught up in political compromises and we stop exercising our moral faculties, then we'll get to a point where we begin to determine the issue through bullets rather than ballots, which is exactly what you saw in that battlefield. And I don't want the country now in 2020 to go in that direction uh, and I, I fear uh, for the country that it's moving in that direction. So I, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think that, that that battlefield and that war and our memory of it uh, is essential to understanding why we don't want to go down that road again.
0: Let me just add two, two other quick points. Statues and monuments whose primary purpose is to praise, not all of them, that's their primary purpose. We've just said that. But even those that have the purpose of praising, they're not necessarily praising every action, word, or idea by the person memorialized. Now we can recognize there are great deeds that are worthy of praise without simultaneously praising every deed done by every person that's being memorialized. And I think we see this you know, really well depicted in the Bible. So you look in Hebrews 11, this beautiful chapter where it talks about the faith of all these important figures from the Old Testament. And it says, by faith, Abraham did this. And by faith, Isaac did that. And, and you read through it and say, wow, isn't that amazing? And then you remember, wait a second, I read that story. <laughs> I read that story in Genesis or Exodus. And it, it seemed like it was a little more ambiguous there. It wasn't quite as clear that that was actually a great act of faith. There seemed like there was some disbelief that was mixed into all of that. Well, the Bible has both. The Bible has that version of Hebrews 11 that tells the story, look, there was faith there. There was this this God's eye view that sees that mustard seed, perhaps, of faith, and yet can laud that, and it also has the rest of the story. You can go back and read about it, and you can see that. We can do those things with historical figures, and in fact, one of the interesting things the Bible says about the job of government, of course, we think about the primary purpose of government, to protect the peace and punish those that break the peace, and evildoers, but it also says the job of government is to praise the good. And if you take that in a strict theological sense, there's no good people to praise, right? There's, there's, there's none who who is righteous, no, not one. So it must be something other than a standard of moral perfection that the government's supposed to use in offering up praise of the good. It's gonna have to be praising people that are flawed and yet who, who have done things laudable and worthy of emulation even if we can simultaneously say, yeah, but didn't you read the rest of the story? Well, yeah, we did. And we know about that and we don't praise that and we don't laud that with that in mind, as we, as we kind of think about these broader questions, what's really behind all this is, is the question of the American project. And that's, that's what Marcus is making that point, that, that what's really embedded in this isn't, isn't the status of this monument or that statue, but, but really the question of America. And so, since this is a July 4th episode, all the more so, we want to think about that project through some, some key required readings that allow us to tell the story over over the course of 200-plus years of American political history. So what, what have you got for us today in required reading, Dave? I've got five speeches,
1: and I think that if we apply the, the idea or, or the moral of what you just said, not, not making the perfect the enemy of the good, uh, each of these five speeches are come from the... Um, mind and, and mouths of, of five men, uh, all who were imperfect and fallen, uh, just like you and, and me. Uh, but I think that uh, the words uh, this weekend, I think, should be read and should be understood and, and should be something that we aspire to. So I'm going to begin. I'm not going to read all of the declaration, but I want to recall its famous beginning. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have united it to another and to assume among the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what do you make of those words, Matt? I know that you've taught the Declaration multiple times. When I read those words, what comes to mind?
0: Well, we could probably spend a month's worth of podcasts unpacking that one passage and it would probably be a good exercise for us and, and for our listeners. But I guess there's two things that I think about when I teach the Declaration before I even get to the details of what's it mean to have a right to life, liberty, of happiness, what are we talking about when we say people are equal and, and all those details... I say, let's let's just start with the account of human nature that that's embedded in this opening paragraph and a half of the declaration. And there's really two fundamental claims it's making about who we are as human beings. The first one is that we are responsible moral agents. We often just jump right to we hold these truths to be self-evident. But there's that first paragraph that explains why there actually is a document itself. You know, Independence Day is July second not July 4th. July 2nd, they approved the resolution that Richard Henry Lee had proposed back in June that said we are and of right ought to be free and independent states. So that was that. Independence Day, if you wanna celebrate the mere fact of independence, celebrate July 2nd, not July 4th. July 4th is Declaration of Independence Day. And there's a reason why you had to give reasons because human beings are responsible moral agents. And their actions, not just the British actions, but their actions have to be measured against the bar, as they put it, of the laws of nature and nature's God. And they have to be able to give reasons that that other people, other responsible moral agents could actually say, yeah, that's right. What they're doing is, is good, is just. So that's the first proposition. But then the second half of that, the second part of what it teaches about who we are as human beings, is that we all, as human beings, independent of any other specific feature of our history or person, as human beings, we all possess an intrinsic dignity as right bearing creatures made by our creator God. And so we have the dignity that comes along with that, along with the
1: responsibility. Yeah, and I think the first thing that I, the first speech that I want to reference here that I put under required reading is the speech given by John Quincy Adams celebrating the. 45th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, John Quincy Adams understood how historic the event was, that that something different happened here with these words, with this statement of moral principles, so that they could act forevermore uh, as a guiding point in history to turn back to, to reflect upon, to apply to the present day. So here's what John Quincy Adams has to say about the Declaration of Independence. Quote, it stands forever, a light of admonition to the rulers of men, a light of salvation and redemption to the oppressed. So long as this planet shall be inhabited by human beings, so long as man shall be of social nature, so long as government shall be necessary to the great moral purposes of society, and so long as it shall be abused to the purposes of oppression, so long shall this declaration hold out to the sovereign and to the subject the extent and the boundaries of their respective rights and duties, founded in the laws of nature, and of nature's God. Five and forty years have passed away since this declaration was issued by our fathers. And here are we, fellow citizens, assembled in the full enjoyment of its fruits, to bless the author of our being for the bounties of his providence in casting our lot in this favored land, to remember with effusions of gratitude the sages who put forth and the heroes who bled for the establishment of this declaration. Well, Quincy Adams knew well, right, that not everyone was enjoying
0: benefits of of that declaration. The center of the passage that you read is this reminder that governments have limits to their power, and that the foundation of that is a law given by God that comes before governments. So we recognize that governments have a certain responsibility. We should be grateful when governments are doing their job. We, we would not do well without government. And we have moments in the last weeks where we've seen glimpses of what it looks like to not have government and the trouble that follows. But governments do serve a purpose, a positive, good purpose, under a responsibility before God. And the Declaration lays that out in a very clear way. And he also you know, he's, he's classic second-generation statesman. I mean, his father's John Adams. So he's the next generation. And so much of his statesmanship is centered upon keeping faith with the founding and the continual need to renew our pledge to respect the limits of that government, and especially for the majority. He had a very interesting political career. When he gave that speech that you just quoted, he was Secretary of State. He then becomes president. For four years. And then, you know, he's 60 plus years old. He's one-term president, disappointed when he loses his rematch with Andrew Jackson in 1828. And you would expect him to retire, write, speak, do his thing. Instead, two years later, he's back in the House of Representatives. He spends the rest of his career as a member of Congress, particularly pressing for justice for slaves and particularly Pressing his generation to close the gap between the ideals of the declaration and the actual practice of his day, which was getting worse during this period. The the justice of all men are created equal is is receding from view. And so thankfully, you have those voices, those prophetic voices during this period, calling Americans back to those founding ideals.
1: And and that's my second required reading, uh, one of those prophetic voices was the voice of Frederick Douglass uh, in his What to the Slave is the Fourth of July address. His answer as to uh, what, what the Fourth of July is to the slave is, is generous on, on many fronts, uh, a, a generous accounting uh, of the mind and actions of, of the men who put in place uh, American independence, but a realization Right. That something is missing here, that that gap exists between the promise of the declaration and the reality of American life in 1852 uh, for an African-American. Douglas says the following uh, to his audience. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us? And am I therefore called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sake and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions, then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. For who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy could not warm him? Who is so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that would not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits? Who is so, so solid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the chains of servitude had been torn from his limbs? I am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might eloquently speak and the, quote, lame man leap as an heart, but such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sense of, of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. So, Matt, what do you make of, of that speech? And, and we know that Lincoln uh, is beginning to come back on the scene. And, and how is Douglas connected to Lincoln? And how are their sentiments about the Declaration connected?
0: Well, one of the things that's most powerful in that speech is the way that he speaks of your independence, your nation. And yet, when it comes to the Declaration's principles, those are universals. Those are the, those are the possession not just of Americans black and white, but of people the world over. And so Douglass does this really powerful thing in working his way through the speech in showing this massive chasm, once again, between the ideals and the actual practice. And he's very clear that the principles of the Declaration are not the problem. The, the the sin of the American founding is a sin of hypocrisy, not a sin of false witness. They said that which was true, and they haven't lived up to it. And in his day, he sees all the more evidence that that's the case. Again, things were getting worse. Things were getting worse from the standpoint of the condition of the slave, from the standpoint of the willingness of individuals to make a case that slavery was actually good. You have that becoming a common kind of argument, which you didn't have in the time of the founding, And even individuals later Southern leaders are critical of people like Jefferson for believing in human equality. They actually recognize that they've adopted a different set of principles. But Douglas says the declaration is good. The Constitution he calls a glorious liberty document, properly interpreted, properly understood, but the practice is abominable. And he hits the government, and he really hits the church, the American church, which has allowed this, which has justified this, which has given scriptural coverage for slavery. Now, the second part of your question, you were asking about the connection between Douglas and Lincoln, and that's probably three more episodes uh, of a podcast, and uh, I teach about that. If you're a King's College student listening, take our Lincoln Seminar, Lord William, next spring, and we'll have a lot to say about Douglas. We read hundreds of pages of Douglas and lots of Lincoln. But I think the short version of this is just to recognize here are two people who both believe that when the Declaration says all men are created equal, it actually means everybody is equal. Not everybody is equal in every respect, but everybody is equal in the same sense we were describing earlier, has that equal dignity as rights-bearing creatures made in the image of God. That's that's a point of fundamental agreement between Douglas and Lincoln. Now, there's lots of strategic questions that divide them. There's A very interesting story that can be told there of how Douglas um, warms to Lincoln over the course of his presidency, very suspicious of Lincoln's motives. And and yet by the end of Lincoln's presidency, there's a genuine friendship there that he describes in his his third autobiography. So we could say a lot about that. But but the, the move from 1852 to 1861 is a move of ever deepening crisis. And it's that crisis as it's reflected in things like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, 1854, that brings Lincoln off the political sidelines. Stephen Douglas, who's the key figure in putting together that compromise of 1850 finally, is of course the person that Lincoln will be rivals with in Illinois. Uh, And then for the nation, they'll run against each other in 1860 for president. By the time you get to the spring of 1861, of course, now we've got tensions leading ultimately to civil war and the breakdown of of the union and and a breakdown that's really grounded as lincoln puts it in the fact that we have a house divided and in what sense is the house divided most fundamentally over the question of human equality
1: yeah so i want to assign on on that front the the address that lincoln gives the july 4th address that lincoln gives right at the beginning of the Civil War. So we're talking 1861. Uh, So within this speech, and I think of particular importance is uh, the question of uh, how do you move forward with differences? So he says, uh, at the end of the speech, he says, uh, our popular government has often been called an experiment. Two points in it are people have already settled. The successful establishing and the successful administering of it one still remains, its successful maintenance against a formidable internal attempt to overthrow it. It is now for them to demonstrate to the world that those who can fairly carry an election can also suppress a rebellion, that ballots are the rightful and peaceful successors of bullets, and that when ballots have fairly and constitutionally decided, there can be no successful appeal back to bullets that there could be no successful appeal except to balance themselves at succeeding elections. Such will be a great lesson of peace, teaching men that what they cannot take by an election, neither can they take it by a war, teaching all the folly of being the beginners of a war. So there, yeah, I think you, you realize Lincoln's recognition that there can be a difference of opinion on issues certainly there were differences of opinions leading up to the civil war but once that those opinions have been decided with an election within a representative republic the government runs its course until the next election and i, I think these words by the way are of incredible importance to us today in 2020. what's going to happen come november of 2020 when we have an election are we going to be willing uh, to work with its results? Are we going to be willing to accept its revol- results? I wonder what will happen. I hope that, that uh, nothing will happen and that we'll accept those results. But I uh, hear you have Lincoln, I think, you know, recognizing uh, that we must be peacemakers, not beginners of wars because of the ideas uh, that uh, tear us apart.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things that's I think so powerful in Lincoln's work is that he's really thought deeply about the consequences of the statement, all men are created equal and the political implications that follow. So one of those implications is that the majority in the normal circumstance governs because what's the alternative? Well, we could say, well, everybody has to agree, but in that case, there's actually no government, right? If if I, as a person of one, can stop any government from acting, then I'm not actually under government. This is anarchy. So we can't insist on unanimity we also can't allow the minority to rule. That's not right. If we're equal, then why is this smaller group able to rule over this larger group, okay? So on the one hand, the rule of majority rule is a natural implication of all men are created equal. But also, the only justification for it is if that majority rules in a way that protects the rights of the minority because if the majority uses its power to then impose upon the minority principles or rules it won't itself live by, then it's denying human equality. And it's human equality that justifies majority rule. You see we're back where we started. So majority rule is both necessary and bounded under the principle of all men are created equal. And Lincoln is constantly reminding us of both those things. When a majority wins an election under a constitution, it wins that election. That's legitimate. It then carries with it the responsibility of acting so that all all will find their good under that victory. The majority has no right to then punish its enemies and do harm to others, but it does have a right to rule in accordance with the law of the constitution. And I think if we could really get that full picture of what it means for human beings to be equal in the political context in which we're describing this, then our our elections would be spirited. They would still be perhaps ugly in certain ways, but we would come out of them, number one, not worried about the legitimacy of the majority's win, and two, not concerned that all my most vital rights were on the ballot that if I lost the election, I was losing something I valued, but I wasn't losing everything that I valued, the most fundamental things that I valued. And that's, that's what Lincoln is getting at here, that to appeal from the ballot to the bullet is to make Republican self-government impossible.
1: Yeah, and I think this idea of equal rights for all and special privileges for none and the recognition of that one election after another also helps you when you're piloting this this Republican ship uh, to better um, balance the requirements of of trying to move toward a more just society, but at the same time uh, paying deference to the liberty of people, paying deference to the fact that they're not always going to get things right, that every election is not always going to figure things out or or move you in the direction of right. But if you're thinking of justice and you're thinking of liberty and you're thinking of peace and they're uh, anchored. Uh, in human equality, right, then you can always come back. You can always have an, another shot. There's always another season where you can make your case, perhaps lose, but but make your case nonetheless. And and I think that's what's, what's interesting about Lincoln's approach uh, compared to really, I, and, and I think unfortunately, uh, the, the new nation that's created uh, after uh, the Civil War and political developments in the country uh, from 1865 uh, onward. Uh, There's a great book uh, titled The Metaphysical Club, uh, written by Louis Menon, the MIT historian, where he takes up really uh, the intellectual forces that that shape the new America uh, after the Civil War. And he very much there suggests that it's not kind of a Lincolnian republicanism that wins the day, uh, but a romanticism, the romanticism of Ralph Waldo Emerson that has an influence on uh, the, the creation of pragmatism as an idea and later progressivism, really the main thrust of American history intellectually at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, uh, that shows you that um, uh, that we move in a, in, 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 toward the progression where, where we want justice, perhaps we want it pragmatically and incrementally at first, uh, but we want it with a great amount more of passion and of changing uh, of the world that we live in and less acceptance of the Republican form of government that, that made the country special. But I want to, um, in my fourth um, required reading, uh, point out, I think, a politician, a statesman that, that understood, uh, even within uh, this influence of progressivism, understood the importance of the Declaration. And, and, and when I read his words, think about where he's placing the Declaration metaphysically uh, as, as a document. This is Calvin Coolidge um, giving an address on the Declaration. About the Declaration, there's a finality that is exceedingly restful. It is often asserted that the world has made a great deal of progress since 1776, that we've had new thoughts and new experiences which have given us a great advance over the people of that day, and that we may therefore very well discard their conclusions for something more modern. We could fall into this historicist trap. But that reasoning cannot be applied to this great charter. If all men are created equal, that is final. If they are endowed with inalienable rights, that is final. If governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed, that is final. No advance, no progress can be made beyond these propositions. If anyone wishes to deny their truth or their soundness, the only direction in which he can proceed historically is not forward, but backward toward the time when there was no equality, no rights of the individual, and no rule of the people. Those who wish to proceed in that direction cannot lay claim to progress. They are reactionary. Their ideas are not more modern but more ancient than those of the Revolutionary Fathers. So here, I think Coolidge recognizes the danger of historicism, recognizes the danger of pragmatism applied to truth. This idea that there are no absolutes unless you make them true. There is no equality unless you make it true. So, so truth as a principle that is final. The Declaration containing principles that are final cannot be true. They have to be made by the latest generation or unmade by the latest generation. If they're made or unmade based upon the decisions of men in any given day, right, then we really leave it to people, right, to embrace the morality of, of human equality.
0: And we can't. That, that would be a destructive thing, Coolidge warned. So at the end of the speech, he's talking about uh, the biblical influences, the religious influences on, on the declaration of the people of the founding. He says, no other theory is adequate to explain or comprehend the Declaration of Independence. It is the product of the spiritual insight of the people. We live in an age of science and of abounding accumulation of material things. These did not create our Declaration. Our Declaration created them. The relationship between the material and the spiritual. The spiritual, getting that right, released all kinds of energy that produced the amazing material things that Americans were marveling at in 1926. We laugh at the state of their technology, but they had gone through an amazing revolution. They'd gone from riding on horses to riding cars. They had planes, they had communication technologies that no one had ever conceived of. But, Coolidge says, the fact that you've made a lot of progress in technology doesn't actually say very much about where you are morally. And in fact, that material progress, which you are so proud of, rests fundamentally, depends fundamentally upon the matters of the spirit.
1: Yeah, and you can also see, and especially applied today, that uh, all of those energies now released, electricity, for example, that allows us to do the show, you in Pennsylvania, d- me in Texas. Uh, uh, those, those energies, that electricity, uh, that technology uh, can advance the cause of human equality But it also can distract us from those moral principles because we get so caught up in our engagement with devices uh, and engagement with the distractions of our day uh, that we don't take the time, as we mentioned last week, uh, to have that deep type of literacy as to what allows our society to experience these great things in the first place. Now, the last uh, thing I want to assign uh, for today um, is a speech uh, by Ronald Reagan on uh, July 4th, 1986. Uh, the Statue of Liberty had been uh, refurbished and, and upon uh, it uh, being shown uh, to the American people once again, and its meaning being shown to the American people once again, uh, Reagan tried to capture the spirit of that day. So Reagan in this speech talks about the reconciliation uh, between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. As you know, Uh, That Declaration of Independence is is a common work of the two of them, Jefferson gets credit for its authorship, but John Adams was fundamental to its passage in the Second Continental uh, Congress. They both, of course, had a rivalry uh, at the beginning or founding of the country. Uh, Adams, of course, um, a Federalist, and and, uh, Jefferson, the founder of the Republican Party. But as they retired from politics and began to write letters uh, back and forth to one another, They began to see uh, the true meaning of what they had done. Uh, And that ultimate reconciliation of Jefferson and Adams leads Reagan to say, of the two of them, it was their last gift to us, this lesson in brotherhood, in tolerance for each other, this insight into America's strength as a nation. And when both died on the same day within hours of each other, that date was July 4th, 50 years exactly after that first gift to us the Declaration of Independence. Reagan goes on to say, my fellow Americans, it falls to us to keep faith with them and all the great Americans of our past. Believe me, if there's one impression I carry with me after the privilege of holding for five and a half years the office held by Adams and Jefferson and Lincoln, it is this, that the things that unite us, America's past of which we're so proud, our hopes and aspirations for the future of the world and this much-loved country. These things far outweigh what little divides us. And so tonight, we reaffirm that Jew and Gentile, we are one nation under God, that black and white, we are one nation indivisible, that Republican and Democrat, we are Americans. Tonight, with heart and hand, through whatever trial and travail, We pledge ourselves to each other and to the cause of human freedom, the cause that has given light to this land and hope to the world. Could you imagine if in a back-to-back press conference, both President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden spoke those words two days prior to the election, that whoever wins this election wins this election, but at the end of the day, we have more in common than what draws us apart. Imagine that the effect that that would have on the election and on the people voting.
0: Well, we're gonna now turn to our second to last segment where we open the grade book. And since it's July 4th, we're gonna stick with that overall theme. You may know that in March of 1931, President Hoover signed a bill which declared the Star Spangled Banner to be the national anthem. And today, as we're in this broader debate about monuments and statues, as we've been speaking about, there's something of a movement afoot to change the national anthem. So we're going to grade quickly three possible contenders for the national anthem, starting with the Star Spangled Banner. What grade would you give our current national anthem, Dave?
1: I love our national anthem, so I would give it an A. I, I don't think that it that needs to be changed, but I, I think that... Uh... <laughs> I'd be interested in what other options uh, would be available. So uh, let me let me uh, hold out judgment on on uh, on the other uh, options. What, what do you have for me for uh, some other grades?
0: Stay stay tuned. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well. Yeah. The, my only complaint with Spangled Banner, which is a common one, is that it's just very difficult to sing. I mean, you gotta really have the kind of range that most of us don't have. Yeah, I'll give it an A minus um, with the caveat for the tune. All right, so another contender, which actually even 1931 was a contender for the status of National Anthem and has been considered certainly ever since, America the Beautiful, a poem originally published um, under the name America, a poem for July 4th. So that was the original vision. It was revised a couple of times. The final version is the version that we all know uh, by Catherine Lee Bates in 1911, the final poetry collection when she put that together. How about America the Beautiful? If we had to adopt an, a different song, what about America the Beautiful, Dave?
1: Well, there's three lines from that that are just beautiful words. Uh, America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul and self-control, thy liberty and law. Those are Beautiful, beautiful words. Boy, if we could apply that to our current predicament, we'd be in much better shape. So, I, uh, if, I guess if you were going to substitute anything uh, for the Star-Spangled Banner, I think that would be a pretty good place. I, I'll give that an A. The, the words of, of, of that are so beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really powerful. And of course, you're quoting from the second verse there, which is less well known. The first verse kind of focuses on the beauty of, of American geography and the different colors. Kind of the imagery that comes along with that, but yeah, you know, she talks about the ideas, the political experience as the as the poem unfolds. So yeah, it's a great, great song, very singable and uh, very beautiful lyrically. I'm gonna give that one an A. All right, our third option is a little bit different, and we wouldn't bring this up except that it has been suggested. So, one of the people that's uh, concerned about Star-Spangled Banner, about Francis Scott Key, and involved in the movement to replace the national anthem, um, a man by the name of Kevin Powell argues that a good replacement would be John Lennon's Imagine. And Mr. Powell says, it's the most beautiful, unifying, all people, all backgrounds together kind of song you could have. So imagine, Dave, imagine as the national anthem.
1: Well, if I remember correctly, I think it begins. Uh, imagine there's no heaven, so unifying all people, all backgrounds together, kind of song. Uh, what part of of that statement strikes you as unifying? I think it's unifying for those who, who don't believe in heaven, but there are a good percentage of us that that do. So, I'm not quite sure where Mr. Powell is going there, but I, I probably uh, I probably wouldn't go with Imagine as my favorite.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a fair critique. And as, as the rest of it unfolds, imagine there's no countries, no religion, no possessions. Is the problem an inside-out problem or an outside-in problem? Uh, imagine the problems are all out there. We're good. The environment's bad. Fix the environment. You get good things. I think the reality is, if you actually study history, and certainly if you study the Scriptures, it's actually an inside-out problem. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks and the hands move and all the rest of the troubles of the world come out of the evil of the human heart. This is the irony. If you want the outcome that imagine imagines, if you want that universal brotherhood, the things that they're proposing as the steps are actually almost the last way to get there. The The hope of brotherhood is in is in Christ's millennial kingdom, not a world without God, not a world without religion, possessions or countries.
1: So can I can I put in an entry of my own here? Just to we're talking, you know, contemporary songs and all the rest that capture the spirit okay. of the age. So right.
0: I mean, you're you're allowed to do this. This is your show too.
1: So I'm trying to think like where people are right now. We've had you know the the terrible influence that COVID nineteen has has produced, with result to death and and all the rest. Uh, we have businesses that are are, are failing. Uh, we have a country that's divided. Uh, we have um, a politics that, that divides us. And so I'm, I'm thinking something around the time of Imagine, but with a little bit of a different beat. You know where I'm going here, Matt? Can you think of where we're going as a country?
0: I think I do, Dave.
1: My entry would be Staying Alive. And you laugh, but look at the lyrics of Staying Alive. Shall we? Well, can t- <laughs> real quickly. Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I mean, you could substitute. You could tell by the way I wear my mask. Nice. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. But it gets better, Matt. Uh, that, that, song <laughs> <hope> is, so. <laughs> that song is prophetic in many ways. We can try to understand the New York Times effect on man. All the mainstream media has a tremendous influence upon us. The Bee Gees knew that in the 1970s. But the Bee Gees also talk about inclusion. Whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive, staying alive. And there is mention of heaven in staying alive. Got the wings of heaven on my shoes. I'm a dancing man and I just can't lose. And finally, the existential existential despair. You probably don't remember this from the chorus at the end. Life going nowhere, somebody help me, yeah, I'm staying alive. Life going nowhere, somebody help me, somebody help me, yeah. Staying alive, and so I, I think um, for those individuals who are kind of wondering whether our country uh, can can stay alive, uh, put that tune on today on July fourth and kind of dance your heart out. The new national anthem, "Staying Alive" by the Bee Gees.
0: You can do "America the Beautiful" and the Star-Spangled Banner on July fourth. The Bee Gees will wait, but but the Bee Gees uh, will always be there for you.
1: So I'm, I'm guessing you're giving that an F. I'm,
0: I'm not going to go with the Bee Gees. I hate to say. I mean that. If I'm judging tunes, uh, you know, there's something there. But, but I don't think the lyrics are going to quite measure up to the standards I'm looking for.
1: So all of uh, Professor Park's former students, I want you to picture uh, Professor Park's in his 70s outfit, kind of Abraham Lincoln dancing to Staying Alive. There you go.
0: <laughs> oh, don't imagine that, actually. <laughs> all right. We are down to our last segment, de Tocqueville's Crystal Ball. Every week, Dave and I make a prediction, and whoever is closest wins that week and gets to make the terms for next week's crystal ball challenge. Last week, we predicted the state the presidential race. So we'd noticed that over the last couple of months, really over the last month in particular, that the race had gone in a new direction, that Joe Biden, who had been trailing Donald Trump, at least in terms of predictions and expectations for November, was now ahead by an ever-increasing margin. And so the question that I asked Dave last week was, would that margin be greater a week down the road that is today, or would that margin have narrowed? The numbers last week, as we were speaking, it was 58.8% chance of Biden victory, 37.8% for Trump. And today at noon, it was 58.9% for Biden, and at a 36.6 for Trump. I had said the gap would widen. David said it would narrow. I win. I think there's some
1: timing there too. I mean, the fireworks are gonna go off uh, over Mount Rushmore Uh, while this show will be released uh, on July 4th. But last night, those fireworks over Mount Rushmore, President Trump speaking to the American people, Perhaps a good photo op, but I, I still think that would have moved moved things in my direction. We'll see. We'll uh, see how that goes. Uh, I think I think it's still a race, though. I think people who are are, are thinking that this thing is over uh, are hoping that it's over. Which I don't not. think
0: the calendar changed since last Friday, though, if I remember correctly. So I I think I think you had all the information that you needed in order to make your projection. So now I get to pick the challenge for this week. And again, keeping with our July 4th theme, as we previewed briefly last time, we've got to predict the Coney Island hot dog eating contest. Now it's sad that this year there won't be an audience. That's definitely a big part of that contest, but there will still and always be Joey Chestnut. Joey Chestnut, who's won 12 of the last 13 hot dog eating contests. The question for you, Dave, does he get 13 out of 14? And if so, how many hot dogs is he able to eat? He wins. He
1: wins. He's uh, excited uh, about the contest. Of course, it's going to be inside with air conditioning. He believes not sweating. Uh, he'll be able to eat that many more hot dogs. And I think gonna, something symbolic is going to happen uh, today. I think he's going to uh, win, and he's going to win with 76 hot dogs. So in the spirit of 76, Chestnut eats 76 hot dogs, breaking the world record. Uh, just a, a wonderful day for hot dogs, for hot dog eating, uh, for Americans, for ESPN. Uh, it's just going to be remarkable.
0: I'm looking forward to eating a couple of hot dogs maybe tomorrow, but I'm not sure I can manage 76. I'm not really a hot dog eating contest person myself, but I do enjoy the sport. So I'm going to say Joey Chestnut does win as well. I agree with you there. I'm not sure he's got 76. That that seems a little bit optimistic. So I'm going to say 70 flat, 70 even, still impressive um, and difficult to watch. But, But nevertheless, I don't think quite 76, 70 is going to be my number. We will see next week who is right. We'll see tomorrow who is right. We'll talk about it next week. In the meantime, that's all we've got for this week. So thanks for joining us. As always, we encourage you to keep listening and review the podcast and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Have a great 4th of July, and we look forward to talking to you next week.